Beautiful amber. Thank you. Amber sushi. Is that right? Sushi? Suki. Suki. Because I, I like sushi so much, so it threw me there. All right, here we are. So, welcome. Um, I'm uh, Reverend Patrick Cameron, and I'm the spiritual director here at the Center for Spiritual Living. So what we do now is we kind of, and the music always takes us. When we, when we experience music, it puts us into coherence. I'm going to talk about coherence again today because it's so important for us on our spiritual journey and how we help nurture that and create that. Because a lot of what we think is mystical is very scientific, and I'm going to share some ideas with you today, and some of you have forms of this information as well, but it's always good to revisit what's impactful. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, invite you to drop into some silence. I brought my chimes with me again today. And just allow yourself to be, to breathe into the moment for about 30 seconds. And then I will uh, offer a chant. It's called In This Very Room. If you're not familiar with it, just let it wash over you. Some of you sing it along quite beautifully. And it's interesting, how my, I, as I move into this consciousness with you, how I forget the lyrics. And I've been singing it for over 20 years. So uh, I know that something beautiful is happening when that happens for me. So if you hear me... Uh, stop, I'm listening to you, so I need your support sometimes. And then I'll do an affirmative prayer. So let's just uh, settle in. There's nothing to fix right now. And the more that we can relax in this quantum unified field of unconditional love, because that's what we represent, that's why we're here. And I'm calling that forth from myself, and I'm inviting that from you as well. That you are a repository of possibility, opportunity, of health, of vibrancy, and of love. And so let's, let's drop in. In this very room, there's quite enough love for all the world. And in this very room, there's quite enough joy for all the world. And there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear. For spirit, one spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. So let's just presence ourselves right here. And we open our hearts. Let us lift our vibrational frequency up by thinking of something we're grateful for. Perhaps it is just having eyes to look upon this beautiful earth each day. That none of us are complete because it is our opportunity to invite the greater yet to be. That all of us are on this journey of unfoldment, of learning, of growing, and embodying something that is rich and vibrant and, and, and fruitful. That we are here to contribute 
in a way that perhaps in this moment we do not even realize. But I invite you to look out in your world and see someone or something that brings you alive and allow that to capture your feeling tone. And just breathe deeply, relax, relax into it. And as we open ourselves and trust ourselves, a new conversation starts to take place. Something beautiful and powerful is seeking our awareness. To ponder it, to welcome it, to live in the mystery more and more because in that mystery, the unknown reveals itself to us that is uniquely ours. And so I give thanks this day for this beautiful community, this, this center for spiritual living. We honor all traditions and yet at the, the depth of each tradition, the reality is, is that God, Spirit, Source, the unified field lives within each and every one of us, around us and through us. That this infinite presence can only do for us what it can do through us, but it needs an invitation. So I stand with you in this moment, in this beautiful repose of relaxing and inviting and understanding and putting down anything and everything that keeps me stuck in the status quo of my beliefs and consciousness, realizing it's just an idea that I've latched onto and it's time to shift and change in some way. And I'm guided in that. So when I say I'm for joy and I'm for love, anything unlike that is diminished in my experience. For this I give thanks, knowing that each and every one of us are open and available to the miraculous this day, to the guidance and the awareness. And I invite you to say with me, and so it is, amen. So um, for me, this is always a, quite a fascinating journey of putting things together because there's, uh, it, it's, fun, it, it's interesting how I'll read things and then months later it'll come back and go, oh, I can, you know, I can use that now. It's like, all right, I thought I could use it six months ago. But part of my journey over the last year has really been around this idea of quantum spirituality. And by quantum, I mean that there's a field of possibility. There's a, and, and we see it through antiquity. We see it through the ages. We see it in the, in the miraculous that has happened with saints and sages throughout history. We've seen it through enlightenment. You know, one of the things that we celebrate here is oneness. This idea there's one life, that life is God or spirit or source or the unified field, but it's an energetic and that's how we participate in this. That's been my experience, and I know for many of you as well. I'm, not, I'm preaching to the choir right now, but what I'm trying to do is focus us in a, and, and create. Because as I call your awareness to it, we generate more of it. That's the richness of this experience, is that you are, you are the thing itself. You are the individualized soul uh, in, the, in a collective soul of, all, of oneness. And so I want to talk today about wholeness. I've been talking all month about wholeness. Wholeness and wholeheartedness, which means being ahead of our time. So the totality of ourselves, bringing not just, not just affirming over the things we don't like about ourselves or we project onto others, which I've talked about for a couple of weeks around owning our shadow and embracing it and saying, come here, come here you, and wrestle it into our awareness and say, you go with me too. But it's, 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 and that's part of it. Carl Jung spoke of that. Wholeness requires all of it to go along. But when we have the awareness to bring it with us, then it no longer has power over us. So my need to blame and shame because it's my un, unowned parts of myself. I look out in the world in a different way. And I can understand it with wisdom rather than have to destroy it or burn it down. So this idea, I want to talk about three things today. Story of, awareness, uh, of awakening is one. And this image that you see over my shoulder here is a picture of the human body as, as imagined when all of the circuits within our body, all the energetic circuits are working. 
and I'm going to tie that in today. So story of awakening, our energetic coherence, which relates to this image that you're seeing up there, and the self-nurturing, self-mastery. And so I'll start with the story of awakening. And the story of awakening is inspired. The last two weeks, uh, I used the uh, parables of Jesus, the, um, the, the uh, mustard seed two weeks ago, and I used the leavened bread last week. And they're two of the shortest parables in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Well, there are a few other Gospels, but they're two of his shortest teaching parables about taking something small, planting a seed, and having it affect the totality and growing into something rich and powerful. And so the metaphor there, I think, for all of us is that it doesn't matter the size of the seed we plant, the idea we plant, the possibility we plant. It's the potency of how we nurture it and move forward with it and say, this is what I stand for. This is what I'm, this is what I'm cultivating in the field of our consciousness. So this story comes from the Buddha, and the Buddha actually had a parable of the mustard seed that I didn't know about until I was doing research. Uh, and in this story, now they, they suspect, and I, prob- I probably agree with this, there's a, bu- um, there's a book called The Gospel of Yeshua, and it relates to Jesus' travels to the, the Far East. They think that some of the lost years that he um, was studied with various teachers and masters. He didn't just, because at the age of about 12, he disappears for about, you know, 28 years, something like that. So here's the Buddha 500 years before Jesus talking about the parable of the mustard seed. And what it is, is that you see the image there, it's Kisa Gotami and the Buddha. And Kisa is this young woman that has given birth to this beautiful boy. And this beautiful boy has died. And so she is just heartbroken. So she takes the boy's body with her all over the village to all of her neighbors and says, can you help me? Is there anything you can do? Do you have an antidote? Is there something we can come up with to bring my boy back to life? And she is just paralyzed with grief. And finally, one of the neighbors says, why don't you go talk to the Buddha? He happens to be nearby. Now, the Buddha had already reached enlightenment, as this parable goes. So she brought the body of her son with her to the Buddha and pleaded with him to help bring her son back to life. And the Buddha said, okay, I'll tell you what. I want you to go gather mustard seeds from your neighbors. And those mustard seeds, we will put together a potion that will help bring your son back to life. But he said, but you cannot gather mustard seeds from any of your neighbors if death has visited their their household. So in other words, go find mustard seeds where, where death has not been an experience for those households. And so she went to the village and she began asking her neighbors for mustard seeds. And all of her neighbors were willing to give her the mustard seeds. But when she said that if death has visited your household, I can't use those mustard seeds. And basically what her neighbors told her is that the living are few, but the dead are many. So as the day became evening, she did this for a whole day. Uh, And then night, she was still without any of the mustard seeds that she'd been instructed to, to collect. She realized that the universality of death and in fact, it is written around this particular passage, a parable. It's not just a truth for one village or town, nor is it a truth for a single family, but for every world settled by gods and men, this indeed is true. Impermanence. Impermanence. That all of this is impermanent. And so with this new understanding, she started to calm. She, all of a sudden, some... Some, some peace started to come over her. She realized that she was trying to fix something that she couldn't fix. How many of us have done that? We have an experience in our lives where conditions go in a certain direction and we realize this is beyond my scope of influence. 
And so she buried her son in the forest and she went back to the Buddha and she confessed to Buddha that she had not obtained any of the mustard seeds he had instructed her to collect because she could not find even one house untouched by death. And so what the Buddha said is the the parable uh, articulates, dear girl, coming from the Buddha, the life of mortals in this world is troubled and brief and inseparable from suffering. So as the Buddha said, life is suffering. We're going to meet these challenges along the way. Just as the earthen vessels made by potters end in shards, so is the life of mortals. Both young and old, both those who are foolish and those who are wise, are falling into the power of death. All are subject to death. Of those who depart from this life, overcome overcome by death, a father cannot save his son, nor relatives or kinfolk. While relatives are looking on and lamenting, one by one the mortals are carried off like oxen to the slaughter. People die and their fate after death will be according to their deeds, which is part of the karmic wheel of the the Buddhist tradition. People die and their, their fate after death will be according to their deeds. Such are the terms of the world. Not from weeping nor from grieving will anyone obtain peace of mind. How many have a spiritual practice of weeping or grieving as a spiritual practice? It's very popular. But we won't achieve peace of mind with that. On the contrary, his pain will be all the greater and he will ruin his health. He will make himself sick and pale, but dead bodies cannot be restored by lamination, by mourning, by sorrow. Now that you've heard from me what I've had to say, Keisha, reject grief. Do not allow it to enter your mind. Seeing one dead Know for sure, I shall never see him again in this existence. And just as the fire of a burning house is quenched, so does the contemplative wise person scatter grief's power expertly, swiftly, even as the wind scatters cotton seed. Which is such a beautiful passage about how do we manage this, this overwhelming tragedy or trauma that shows up in our lives. He who seeks peace should pull out the arrows of lamination, useless longings and the self-made pangs of grief. He who has removed this unwholesome arrow and has calmed himself will obtain peace of mind. Verily, he who has conquered grief will always also be free from grief, sane and immune, confident, happy, and close to nirvana. So Kisa entered the first stage of enlightenment. This was part of her initiation into the Buddhist way of life. And she went on to become, as the legend has it, the, uh, the first female adherent to reach nirvana working with and using Buddhist practices. So I think this story illustrates so much of humanity for us. We all have suffering in our lives. We all have things that show up in our lives we don't expect. But this is the human condition. The Buddha said that, you know, life is suffering. Um, But it doesn't mean that we have to continue to suffer in it because what we can do is we can shift perception. We can shift how we see things and realize that all of it has come for us. The Buddhists, in fact, say that what reincarnates on that reincarnation wheel are the unhealed aspects of ourselves. So is it any surprise that we're confronted with things that make us uncomfortable at times? Because most of us are interested in just being um, happy all the time and fulfilled all the time and enjoy all the time. Anybody got that mastered yet? But I mean, there's this idea in the culture, when you look out in the world, there's sort of this preoccupation with, with fulfilling one's material needs. You know, it's the next car that we own, it's the next home that we should have, and it's the, and all that stuff's great in perspective. All of it's important, just like suffering is, is important, but in perspective, because if it's a full life, if all we do is suffer, we're missing the point. 
Because there's something for us to know. It's come to wake us up. If we get lost in the, world, the material world as well, that's only part of it. So we're out of balance. That's not wholeness. That's not using the gifts that we have, the inherent gifts we have. I think we're here to be productive. I think we're here to be used for a, a, a good purpose. I think we're here to model and continue to dive deep into the, the mystery of our own being and, and, and dissolve and shed some of these error beliefs, some of, the, some of the epigenetics of what our families gave us and say, well, you know what, my dad, see, my, my dad was never, he could not nurture because he never got it. So I, I had to go find other men in my life that could nurture so I found that through sports. I found coaches that probably were more of a father to me than my dad could be. And it wasn't because my dad was a bad guy. My dad was a great guy. All he knew how to do was work. That's all he did. He worked 80, 90 hours a week. But the point is, is that I could have I honored that legacy out of loyalty to him and not nurtured. But I so longed to experience the fullness of, of that relationship I never got and to live from that. So he was my inspiration. If he had nurtured me a lot, maybe I would have swung the other way and said, the heck with that. But you see how this stuff works? You know, not right or wrong, good or bad. It's just what was. So he was the perfect dad for me. So in this, um, this journey of um, awakening, Kisma has this great grief that shuts down her heart. And, and traps the, the energy of her body in her gut because that's where we store these, these memories in our guts. Uh, and what they are, we, we, it's trapped there. It's trapped energy. So I want to talk about looking at her life and the struggle she went through and then all of a sudden the reality set in. It's like, I can't change this. My son has died. His body is gone. The relationship and the love I have goes on. It's like when we go through divorce. I've been through a divorce. You know, you, that's the end of a dream. There's a, there's a mourning there. It's the end of the relationship as it was. But in that, there's always a resurrection. There's always a possibility for a new life, as Jesus showed us. So this energetic coherence, and once again, the image of the lady with her hands up and all of the energy moving through it, but what it really represents is when all of our energy centers are, are lining up. And that is called the coherence of the, uh, the, the chakras of the body. So many of you are energy workers, and I know that many of you do the brain gym stuff, but, but all of those chakras, when they line up, we have a better opportunity to tap into this unified field. When they're out of coherence, the next slide shows it being, them being out of coherence. That's when we have some problems, misalignment, because energy can't move, so it gets trapped. So Kisa, the energy was trapped in her heart. Probably was shut down in many. Many of the chakras were out of alignment. So... On the next slide, it shows an illustration. It might be hard. The text is a little bit uh, small for you, but it shows at the bottom. The, the orange one at the bottom is survival, our physical needs, our tribal association. That keeps us going. That's an important, important piece for all of us. We need all of these. And each chakra has its own intelligence. It has its own brain. In fact, there's more chakras than these seven, but these are the primary seven that run up and down the, the body. The next one up is, is the uh, emotions. It's where... Uh, procreation takes place. It's that mustard colored or orange one. And then we move to the yellow one, which is personal power. It's right in the solar plexus. It's our gut. Where you have that gut feeling. Or you, have, you, know, you're, you know, a lot of times when, when something gets triggered in us or you see that person that has been in this dance of, of oppression or, or betrayal with you, you'll feel that in your gut because it's stored there. It's an energy. The green is the heart, the heart chakra. The, the uh, blue is the throat. Sometimes when we, don't have, we can't find our voice, many people go through life find, trying to find their voice. The energy gets stuck. I've watched over and over people that have developed cancers in their torso. 
And it's, a lot of it is related to the trap energy in the throat. It's not an accident. So what wants to be expressed? What wants to be shared? What wants to be freed? Then we move up into the sixth chakra, which is the third eye. And I'm going to talk quite a bit about that today. And then the uh, seventh chakra is the crown chakra. So if you put your thumb or finger right on the top of your head right there, right in the middle, that's where your crown is. That's your crown chakra. Yeah, just drill that fingernail down in there about two or three inches till you get down in there. And then. But that's the crown chakra. And there's another one. There's an eighth chakra, which is a portal. But we are energy. We are energy. So when, when people have these experiences, these mystical experiences... Something happens to us. There's a physiology. There's a shift. There's a change. You know, we were at the Eskimos game the other night. I was in row 61. It's, it's quite an interesting place to watch the game because you see everything way up there. Um, and, but but uh, John Jones was here earlier. And at halftime, John, one of our members, got up and he kicked the football at the halftime. There were three guys kicking and he won the, his leg of it. And we were talking about him today, but there, were, there was a big crowd there because it was this 50-50 carryover. So the 50-50 was, the take-home was 436,392. Who was counting? So if you double that, that's what was collected. So there's 36,000 people in there. I'm doing the math because I'm an old contractor. I'm always measuring the floors in my head and, you know, what it would take to put new linoleum down. I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, there's 36,000 people here. There's $872,000 in change that has been raised. That, oh, no, there was the carryover. That's right. I don't know what the carryover was, so my math is off. But I thought if it had just been those people that night, that would have been almost $300 a person. And I thought, man, oh, man, when people are motivated, they can dig in their pocket and come up with some money, can't they? I mean, it was this, this, this excitement in the air. And people, there were people in line buying tickets. They never saw the game. I'm here to buy 50-50 tickets. Pardon me? Oh, yeah, yeah, somebody won it. So what great joy for that person. You know, the, um, I was hoping you won it so you could tie it to the center, but I guess not now. <laughs> but the point being is, is that, that, you know, so energetically, I'm sure that, the, man, everything probably just lit up for that person, you know, the birth of a child. But when we're out of alignment, when, when we have energy stuck, when we've had trauma, and we have trauma, I'm not, I'm not trying to say don't have trauma, we've got trauma. We've had our heart broken, just like Kisa. We're walking around. I mean, she abdicated power. She wanted other people to, to fix it for her. First, it was her neighbors, then it was Buddha. And what, the great thing what Buddha did is Buddha didn't do the healing. He said, "Well, here's what you can do." He he set her on a path where she could have her own discovery, and realize in, in a very gentle way that this is not possible. But how many of us want the impossible to be made possible in our lives? So it's a beautiful story about this, but, but energetically, when we have these traumas, we have these places we store the energy, energy can't move. When energy can't move, our aliveness and our capacity to lift ourselves up energetically is compromised. So on the next slide, it shows the, the chakras and the subtle bodies. The chakras and the subtle bodies. The subtle bodies are those, those energetics. It's like, kind of like Chinese acupressure uh, and acupuncture. They know the meridians of the body, and they, they put those needles into free energy. Anybody ever had that done besides me? Boy, and when they hit the nerve, when the, nerve, when the energy's stuck, oh my gosh, that'll, that'll wake you up in the morning, won't it? It's like, hmm, does this hurt? Oh no. And then they wiggle that needle a little deeper, and I, ah. But the point being is that energetically, the Chinese have known this for thousands of years. The Chinese used to use sharpened stones before they had needles. That's how far back it goes. Yeah, imagine that. Anyway, so one of, one of the things we have here in the center that is an underused resource that comes from John of God is our, our chakra bed, our crystal bed. 
Uh, and our crystal bed is over in the room over here. We went to Abhijani with John of God, and they do energy work there. And one of the reasons I'm so inspired by all this is I've seen the quantum field in action. I've experienced, I've seen um, and felt um, disembodied light workers working on my body. So what happens with the crystal bed over here is it helps align the chakras. So the energy flows. So people have said to me, how often should I do a crystal bed? About, I don't know, once every four or six weeks. It's not something that you... But if you're interested in a, having a practice that helps align the chakras, it's got many, many great benefits. Um, and it's, but it's very subtle. It's kind of like having a massage, but on the inside of your body, energetically, because it helps line things up. And the entities of light, we have the agreement from the entity, and this is, this is the, you know, the saints and doctors that have passed on, uh, are, have the invitation. We have the agreement. We had to have permission to, to purchase this crystal bed. So people wonder, you know, when we brought it back, I didn't want to bring this thing back. Then I got to explain it, and you guys are nuts, and what's this whole thing? What's a crystal bed? It's just simply we have a massage table in there, and the light's standard over it, and the lights fire at a certain frequency. So they, they randomly fire, and they're lined up with the physical chakras of the body. And it creates creative flow, mental clarity. It's helpful with weight loss, healthier eating patterns, balanced Hormones, a sense of being alive, stress relief, release of anxiety, depression, mental afflictions, helps with sleep, cellular restructuring of water molecules in the body, elevated energy levels, and spiritual transformation. It's one tool. People also can do these, this thing. The chakras can also get aligned through meditation, certain specific meditations. I'm going to mention one at the end of my uh, uh, discussion today that we're going to present next Saturday morning here. Um, tai Chi, uh, yoga, uh, Kijong, you know, many of the energy things that, that, that are valuable. That's why they do these practices. You know, you see the Chinese get up in the morning and they do their Tai Chi. All those What they're doing is they're freeing that energy. And in the West, I think the majority of people aren't even aware of that. We are, we are trip-wired to move into that infinite divine relationship in such a beautiful way. The, the, the Christ consciousness, the Buddha nature. Each and every one of us. Jesus said, these things I have done, ye shall do an even greater. So when we, we do this self-nurturing, moving to the third point. So one is the energetic coherence. That is the chakras uh, being in alignment. We have a better chance of accessing the divine and that divine intuition when we're lined up. Which then is part of self-nurturing and self-mastery. So we have this amazing little trigger within us, in our brains. And the wonderful thing is we were with Joe Dispenza a while back, Laura and I, and Joe talked about this and taught about this so beautifully, and, and I wanted to, to put this together. And next week I'm going to talk more about it with different illustrations because it's such a, a rich and wonderful thing to know. But in the human brain, right there, you see the pineal gland. So what happens when the energy is moving up and down, the pineal gland gets triggered. And the pineal is that area... They call it the spiritual antenna or the third eye. The pineal is the size of a pea in the center of the brain. It's right at the top of the spinal column in the brain. In a, it's in a tiny cave behind and above the pituitary gland, directly behind the eyes attached to the third ventricle. The next slide actually shows a physical representation. Right in the middle, you see that little, that little spot. That's the pineal. So it's activated by light. It controls the various biorhythms bio of the body. It works in harmony with the hypothalamus and directs the body's hunger, thirst, sexual drive, and biological clock that determines our aging process, which is quite interesting. 
So the human body has a third eye whose function has long been recognized. This goes back to antiquity. This is not a new thing. And I'm going to show you some really great slides today that support some of this idea. In uh, 1700, um, René Descartes, philosopher, French philosopher, called the pineal the seat of the soul, which inspired Gary Zukov's book, The Seat of the Soul. It, he felt it was a way the soul expressed through our physicality. The ancient Greeks contemplated its impact. Pluto believed it was our connection to the realms of thought and called it the eye of wisdom. So they knew about this. They knew and they triggered it, and probably because they were less distracted than we are. You know, there was more time for contemplation and feeling the sensations of what different practices and, and, and stimulus would do. The East Indians call it prana. The Chinese call it chi, this energetic, but it's vital energy that gets, that gets triggered. And it fully occurs when the crown chakra, the one I had you locate, and the sixth chakra, the pineal, get activated. And then something magical can happen that is timeless. It's beyond space, beyond time, beyond this material realm. It's the realm of the divine, the miraculous. Where here we're trying to shift matter with matter. At that realm and in that, that consciousness, things can happen like that. So the Egyptians... Uh, with the Egyptians, this pineal was symbolized by the eye of Horus. So there's the eye of Horus, which is th that sacred Egyptian symbol. Horus was the precursor to the legend of Jesus. And I'm not saying that Jesus' life was a, a legend, but if you understand the history of Horus, Horus was about 2,000 years, 3,000 years before Jesus. He was crucified on a tree, uh, spent, uh, died, and then three days later was resurrected, born to a virgin, all the things, and it's like, well, did they... Did someone share that information with the writers of the gospel or is it, you know, a chance? But Horus was this divine entity, son of God. So isn't it interesting that the eye of Horus looks a bit like a cross-section of the human brain? In, in uh, the Buddhist tradition, if you, in mo many of the Buddhist statues, not all, but many, you'll see this figure. You'll see this figure with this... Uh, and what that represents on the top of the Buddha's head is the pine cone. The pineal is called the pineal because it, it, it's reminiscent of a pine cone, a tiny one. It's the size of a pea. But isn't it interesting that Buddhists use this representation of the pine cone? And you'll also notice on this statue, the bindi, the little, there's a little um, uh, symbol right at the third eye there. That's called the bindi. And the next slide shows a woman, an, uh, a Hindu. That's the Hindu bindi. So if you've ever seen anyone walking around Edmonton or, you know, in a, with that, that circle on their forehead, the Catholics, I was raised Catholic, and we did Ash Wednesday. We did the ashes on the third eye. But the bindi represents that, the power of the third eye. In fact, Jesus, Jesus had a, a wonderful um, um, take on this as well. And it's in Matthew. It's two of the, uh, the first one for somehow disappeared. Oh, there we go. The people sat, that sat in the darkness saw great light. What was he referring to? People that sat in the great darkness saw great light. To go within and allow that light to get triggered on. And then an even more profound quote from Jesus from Matthew is from Matthew uh, 6.22. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be filled with light. You think maybe he was referring to the third eye? His meditation practice? Isn't it interesting how in traditional scripture, all of these clues are there. We see it throughout history, and yet we sometimes think it's that, oh, you know, as, as our tradition says, it is our opportunity to embody the Christ consciousness. That what Christ actually meant was God manifest through the, through the individual is the Christ. 
That's what it means. It's the anointed one. And all of us, as Jesus said, we have all been, we are all the anointed ones. The Sumerians, if you see this picture up there of the Sumerians, one of the most advanced and ancient tribes that have ever lived on the planet. And the, the man is holding a pine cone as he's passing it. So why would they carve a pine cone? The Anunnaki was one of the most advanced civilizations of the old world. And they use the pine cone frequently. There's many, many depictions. If you Google images of the Sumerians on, on, on the internet, you'll see them with the pine cone over and over and over again. The Romans on the side of this um, big urn, there's a man with his staff. At the end of that staff is a pine cone. Throughout Roman Vatican, there's another slide here. There's a, in the Vatican sits this great big pine cone. In fact, that pine cone was there before the Vatican was was taken over by the, the Catholics, which was the Church Universal at the time. It was sitting there already. And if they, they didn't agree with it, I'm sure they would have taken it down. In fact, on Pope, each Pope's staff, if you, if you Google pictures of the Pope with his staff, on his staff is carved the pine cone. The ancients knew about this. They were aware of this, this amazing capacity we have to light up that there's that, that direct connection to spirit. And if you're interested, there's tons of stuff on YouTube, how to activate the pineal. You'll hear me say many times when you go into meditation, place your tongue at the roof of your mouth, just behind your teeth. That's one of the ways you activate the pineal. Another circuit that gets lit up. <clears throat> it's quite fascinating. So the symbol of the pine cone was revered throughout the ancient world because they understood it. They understood how powerful it was. So the story of awakening and energetic coherence when we know this, see, when we have this information, I think we're better able to use it. And so in our meditation practices, how do we tap into that potential? How can we be more efficient with our spiritual practice, with how we show up in the world? So I think we're here to give birth to this. We are here. It's no accident we're here at this point in time. You look at all the discord that's going on in the world, the confusion, systems that seem to be faltering and breaking down. But that just means that they've run their course. And to give birth and be part of the, the, that, what I would call the 1%, the one percenters of the spiritually awake and interested and curious and, and active in this and enrolled in their own, your own awakening. You see, transformed people transform people. Transform people transform people. So your transformation influences thousands of people. This is the way it works because we're all one. And all of a sudden, people that say, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, we're able to stand there and go, well, maybe not. Maybe this is the way change shows up. Maybe this is how systems break down. You know, for years and years and years, people believed the world was flat. Now that idea is coming back around. You know, and it's like, have you ever gotten into an airplane and looked at the horizon? But okay. Someone after the first service said to me, you know, all this, he said, I'm on that internet, and I, I agree with him. All these conspiracy things that this has happened this time. It's like... You know, if I read that stuff, I just, my energy goes right back down into that, that perineum chakra. I'm just like, I'm in survival mode. What's going to, and it's like, wait a minute here. I get to choose how I participate in this. And if, I, and if I abdicate my responsibility to that, I'm not as effective. So how can I energetically lift myself up and be more invested in the future than I am with my past? How can I realize, yeah, I screwed this up, I could have done this better, and what that's done is inspire me to, to, to acquire the tools and the capacity to up-level my capacity so I'm more invested in my future than I am in dragging my, my, my stories of despair along with me. 
Our stories of despair are important to tell. So it's like Kisa. Kisa had to have the experience of mourning. And Buddha finally said, eventually you need to cast that all away. Pull out those arrows of lamination and move forward. That's what the Joe Dispenza is talking about in his breaking the habit of being yourself. It's like when you are more interested in what's out in front of you than you are uh, uh, the mistakes of your past, you are ahead of your time. You are ahead of your time. Isn't that beautiful? I know I'm preaching to the choir here because we do it. We forget. We fall asleep. That's the samsara that the Buddhists talk about. That you go back on that cycle of time. Oh, I'm stuck here. I'm stuck here. I'm stuck here. And it's like, mm, when we break those with my dad, one of the things I know from my dad is I get to carry the legacy forward of the things he didn't have opportunities for. And I know because I'm energetically connected to him that my shifting and changing, my transformation influences him. It influences consciousness. And so he's behind me going, you go, boy, you go, boy. I know that. And I know that from my mom, too. They, they gave everything they had. They had 11 kids. Why would any, I used to say, why? one of my nieces said to my sister the other day, tell us about what it was like to grow up with 11 children in your family. You know, like, that's a fascinating thing. Why would anybody do that? And I'll tell you why. Because that was their dream. That was the dream they had. Well, it's not my dream. You know, I got to experience it, man, I tell you. I got tired of getting hand-me-downs from my older sister. I looked funny at school. <laughs> but that's what we had. But we are here to get, we're either here to, to continue that legacy of dysfunction and struggle and pain, or we're here to bring mastery to it. And the way we can best do that, I think, is to have a meaningful and impactful connection with, with the divine, with spirit, with the unified field of divine intelligence, and use that, the clues that show up to, to propel us forward. So in commitment to this, in devotion to this, if you're interested, next Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, we're going to do an hour meditation here. We're going to share with you the Joe Dispenza. Once again, many of you are familiar with it. We've been using it a while. The blessing of the energy centers. There's a real potency to it when we do it together. And we'll talk about some of the, some of the ways to activate that pineal. There was a lady I was watching forever young last night with Steve Harvey. I've never seen it before, but I I needed a break from working on this. So I I work in spurts, and I turned the television on, and here was this this segment. This woman was 91 years old, and she's from Germany, and she's a gymnast. And she, I mean, she had the body of a 20-year-old, and she's doing backflips and cartwheels, and she's up on the parallel bars. And she looked great, but he said to her, what is one of your, what are your practices that keep you so youthful? And one of the practices that that Joe Dispenza describes, and we use quite frequently in his meditation, is you put your hands together, you tighten the perineum, which is the base of your torso, and you push, and you tighten the lower abdomen, and you push that energy, you push the the brain fluid up into, and it act up into the brain, it activates the perineum, and you hold your breath, you take a deep breath, and put, and here she's on, she says, well, let me show you my breathing technique, and she says, and I'm like, there it is. There it is. There's no secrets to how this works. But what it does is it, and, and what it does too is it forces up the trapped energy, especially in the gut. It forces that energy up, and all of a sudden, that energy that we use for procreation and reproduction is forced up into something that's that's more potent and creative. The Hindus will tell you that the that the the base chakra has to pass through the heart chakra and go to the crown. That's how they work together. So it's not because if you, you've seen people that just operate from their base chakra. I, I, there's several of them that are in, prominent in the news frequently. But without the connection through the heart, it's, it's missing something. It's missing the other part. And that's wholeness as well. 
It's the totality of it. So I, I look forward to next Saturday if you're interested, and we'll continue to do it and continue. But, but what I see is a really potent and efficient way to take our body's physiology and the spiritual nature of our being to align those chakras and to force that energy up into something creative and powerful and beautiful that not even God can imagine. That's why we're here. We're here for the delight of spirit to create, to bless, to share, to contribute. And the reason that we get motivated for that is because we've had our fill of, of acquisition and consumption. You can only consume, you can only have so many meals a day. And so the point is, is to live in that balance, that wholeness, that harmony of the consumption and the contribution of the light and the dark and to understand it with wisdom so that when the crisis shows up in our life like Kisa, we can process it more efficiently and realize that everyone, everyone experiences suffering Everyone experiences loss, but it's our opportunity to figure out how we move forward from that loss, from that challenge, from that opportunity. So blessings, thank you for being here today, and go out and shine your light upon the world because you are the light of the world, and so it is. Amen.